Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. An antique doll that tells of a tortured demise. Her fingernails were all broken and bloody. A chance discovery that ignites the world of fashion. It's staying this brilliant, bright color. And an audacious stunt that ends in disaster. The trains came rushing together at 45 miles an hour, a 90-mile-an-hour impact, and boosh! I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. In the heart of the Appalachian Mountains is the town of Pikeville, Kentucky, the site of the infamous feud between the Hatfields and McCoys. And the town's graveyard is the final resting place of McCoy family elders. But this cemetery holds another, even darker secret. The key to which is held at the Big Sandy Heritage Center. Here, among the Native American headdresses and Civil War weapons, a sinister artifact tells the tale of a horrific incident that defies belief. She weighs a pound, pound and a half. She's 29 inches long, has a lovely face. She's probably about 100 years old. According to curator Everett Johnson, this cotton-stuffed doll was never intended for child's play. She's made to commemorate a terrifying event in the history of Pikeville. So what horrifying incident does this doll honor? And in whose image was she made? The late 1800s, Pikeville, Kentucky. A young entrepreneur named James Hatcher is making a name for himself in the burgeoning timber industry. He was a successful and quite wealthy man and prominent in the community. 
But despite his good fortune, there is something missing in his life. James Hatcher has just about everything uh, that a successful person would want, except a wife. Then he meets a charming 18-year-old local woman named Octavia Smith. Octavia Smith was a very beautiful, slender, dark-haired lady who came from a prominent family. Instantly, the couple falls in love. James and Octavia had a whirlwind romance, and they were married within a year after they first met. And in January 1891, Octavia gives birth to a little boy they named Jacob. But the couple's happiness is short-lived. Soon after his birth, the infant falls sick and dies, leaving Octavia inconsolable. After the death of the child, Octavia goes into this very deep depression and takes to her bed. She refuses to eat. Then, after three months, Octavia's condition takes an alarming turn when she develops a raging fever and slips into a coma. The doctors were baffled by her uh, condition. They had not seen this before. As the days and weeks go by, despite the doctor's best efforts, Octavia remains completely unresponsive. Then, on May 2nd, James's worst fear comes true. The doctor can no longer find a pulse on his wife, and Octavia Hatcher is pronounced dead. The disease that killed her, a mystery. With intense summer heat already hitting the region, doctors urge the grieving widower to promptly bury his beloved young wife to keep her body from decomposing. James is dazed, and he goes along with this. They took her immediately to the Pikeville Cemetery and buried her beside her late son, Jacob. But no one could have imagined what happened next. In the days after the funeral, doctors in Pikeville begin to notice a sinister phenomenon. Other residents are exhibiting the same symptoms as Octavia did before she died. High fevers, slowed pulse rates, and finally, a coma-like state. But there is one key difference. After these patients have been given enough time to convalesce, they become conscious and recover. As more and more afflicted patients wake from their comas, James is overcome with a sense of panic. Was Octavia Hatcher buried alive? There's only one way to uncover the truth. Officials dig up Octavia Hatcher. With dreaded anticipation, James Hatcher watches as his wife's coffin is pulled from the ground. The lid springs open, and a shocking sight lies before them. The velvet lining of her casket has been shredded. Her fingernails were all broken and bloody from having scratched her body in the lining of the coffin. James's worst fears are confirmed. His wife had indeed been buried alive. But how could this have happened? What kind of disease could cause a death-like state without actually killing the victim? Some locals blame the fumes from the area's heavy industry. Some people thought that the air may have been contaminated either by coal mines or gas, and that would have caused these people to have gone into this coma. Despite efforts to uncover what made the townsfolk so sick, the true source of the disease is never known. 
and James Hatcher is forever haunted by Octavia's awful death. To commemorate the life of his wife, he has a life-size statue carved and placed on her grave, along with that of their young son, Jacob. The chilling story of Octavia Hatcher and her gruesome demise becomes a local legend. And in the years following her death, this doll, now on display at the Big Sandy Heritage Center, is crafted in her image as a macabre memorial to a grieving mother whose death remains one of the strangest in American history. Surrounded by boundless acres of Texas farmland in the state's central region sits the isolated city of West. Now a small farming community, West was once a prosperous railroad town. Situated in the former station house is the Katy Depot Museum, an institution that chronicles the time when the Iron Horse first crossed America's Great Southwest. But among the railway memorabilia and photographs of local veterans, one puzzling relic stands out. This is a very heavy item. Appears to be solid iron. It looks mechanical. According to railway expert Skip Waters, this particular artifact recalls one of the most terrifying events in the history of this small town. People said they've never seen anything like this before in their lives. What is this strange metal object? And what role did it play in one of the most spectacular publicity stunts of all time? It's the 1890s. The nascent railroad industry is crisscrossing America, bringing prosperity and people to newly opened lands. But with this new technology comes a serious danger. Train wrecks. Collisions. Derailments. And steam boiler explosions in engine cars are all too common. But one man sees more than death and disaster in these terrible accidents. George Crush sees money. As an agent for the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad, commonly known as the Katy, it is his job to increase ridership. He reflected on the fact that whenever there was a train wreck back in the 1800s, it was always front page news. A train wreck in the 1800s is like wrecking two 747s today. He knew that people had a natural fascination to want to see it. So Crush concocts a daring scheme to stage a crash at a specific location that will be witnessed by a large audience. And this won't be just any wreck. It will be a head-on collision. Although the event would be free, Katie would charge for the train tickets to get there. And the site chosen by Crush for this audacious stunt is four miles south of the town of West. He picked an area that ended up being a natural amphitheater. It was kind of like a valley with, uh, with gradually rolling up hills, and everybody would have a, a good view. This temporary location is named Crush, after George himself. Wasting no time, workers begin installing the track for the collision course, while George Crush begins promoting his outlandish scheme. He started telling the story in the local newspapers. It actually got nationwide attention. Most importantly, Crush oversees rigorous tests on the trains, consulting with several engineers and mechanics. The idea was when Crush gave the signal, 
Both crews would fire up the engines. At some point, they're going to jump off, and the two trains would be released, speeding together to have a collision. Crush believes that the trains will hit each other head-on and make a huge inverted V of twisted metal over the tracks at the site of the impact. Safety was one of Crush's biggest concerns. He assured everyone every precaution is being taken to ensure the safety of the trains and the patrons that come to see it. September 15, 1896. The day of the great stunt has arrived. Crush planned between 15 and 25,000 people to show up at this event. By the end of the day, there was an estimated up to 40 to 50,000 people. As the anxious crowd gathers, the anticipation of the impending demolition is palpable. People are excited because not every day you get to see a train wreck. Shortly after 5 p.m., George Crush signals the engines. The whistle was tied to the driving wheel. So as the driving wheel rolled, the train kept going toot, toot, toot. But Crush's carefully choreographed collision is about to unravel before his eyes. Texas, September 15th, 1896. An ambitious employee of the Katy Rail Line named George Crush has dreamed up what he believes is an ingenious way to promote his company, stage a massive train wreck. So, can George Crush pull off this audacious stunt? As the two trains head towards one another, approximately 40,000 spectators hold their breath, waiting for impact. The trains came rushing together at 45 miles an hour, a 90-mile-an-hour impact, and boosh! A massive explosion rips through the trains. The air is instantly filled with shrapnel, raining down on shocked spectators. People were held helpless as train parts started flying by them. Crush's plan has gone spectacularly awry. The collision was supposed to be two trains that wrecked together and form, go up to an upside-down V and fall down, and that was supposed to be it. But that's not what happened. When the trains crashed, they telescoped each other and exploded. The train's pressurized boilers could not withstand the force of the impact and ignited the blast. In the aftermath, there are three dead and at least six wounded. But in spite of the injuries to their fellow spectators, those left unscathed have an astounding reaction to the catastrophic wreck. The crowd rushed in because they wanted souvenirs from the train wreck. And one such memento, an unidentified train part, is now preserved at the Katy Depot Museum in West. Although the audacious publicity stunt ends in tragedy, George Crush does in fact receive the attention and revenue he promised the Katy Railroad. And noting his success, other promoters soon follow suit. Train wrecks went on to be a popular stunt at state fairs and expositions across the country. Aging locomotives are employed to provide entertainment for throngs willing to pay to witness such a calamity. But nothing has ever been compared to the crash of Crush. And today, this solid piece of shrapnel at the Katy Depot Museum in the town of West Texas serves as a visceral reminder of that fateful day. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is known for its colonial streets and historic landmarks. 
But right in the heart of downtown is an institution dedicated to science and discovery, the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Its museum showcases innovations ranging from the Industrial Revolution to today. But according to director Jennifer Landry, amidst these high-tech machines is one rather simple item with a very colorful history. It's about 10 inches in length and 3 to 4 inches wide and was electrifying in its impact on our world. This vibrant silk swatch is over 100 years old and is the result of an accidental discovery that reverberated through the halls of industry and empire alike. What was this revolutionary finding? And how did it change the way the world looks forever? March 1856, London, England. William Perkin is an 18-year-old prodigy and a student at the Royal College of Chemistry. For a class assignment, Perkin is attempting to make a synthetic version of quinine, a naturally occurring substance which is in high demand as a treatment for the deadly disease malaria. He's working with coal tar, which is this black, gunky material. And the experiment doesn't work. Dejected by the failure, he cleans his equipment with a rag wet with alcohol. When something unexpected suddenly catches his eye. He notices that the rag he's using becomes this brilliant color. The young scientist immediately abandons his quest for quinine and tests the bright liquid on silk and cotton. He finds that even after being washed and exposed to light, the purplish color remains true. And he gets pretty excited because it's staying this brilliant, bright color. Perkin realizes that his accidental discovery could have earth-shattering consequences for one industry. Fashion. Until that moment, fabric dyes had been derived from natural substances such as plants and animals, some of which were very hard to acquire. And the rarest of these traditional dyes was purple. The ingredients needed to make this color came from an exceptionally rare source, the glandular mucus of a particularly obscure mollusk. In fact, the dye was so hard to make that purple clothing became the ultimate fashion statement and was almost exclusively worn by monarchs, clerics, and the very wealthy. And so you come to see royal purple because they were the only ones that could actually afford to use it. But Perkin realizes his synthetic dye could offer the masses an inexpensive alternative to this majestic shade. It's not a scarce resource. It's created in a laboratory and not dependent on the availability of a natural supply. And he wonders, is there something I could do with this? Is there potential here? Perkin files a patent for his invention. And using the name of a French flower, he calls the dye Movine. Then the chemist decides to abandon his academic studies and open his own factory to manufacture this new purple dye. But as he asks investors to bankroll his new business venture, his youth presents a major obstacle. He's an 18-year-old. And no one is quite willing to make that leap. Even those who see beyond his age believe there is no market for a synthetic dye. One investor refers to Perkins' venture as being harebrained. 
It's a status quo. Everyone always used natural dyes, and that's what everyone always uses. Now, having abandoned his studies on the whim of an accidental discovery, Perkins seems doomed to fail. So what will it take to rescue his groundbreaking invention? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's 1856, London. A young chemist by the name of William Perkin has accidentally created something brilliant. The first ever synthetic dye in a color he calls Movine. But when Perkin tries to market his discovery, the chemist is met with ridicule. So can Perkin bring Movine to the masses? After months of rejection, Perkin finally finds an investor willing to roll the dice. His father. His father outlays most of his net worth to help Perkin establish this factory, which becomes known as Perkin & Sons. Now backed by his father's life savings, Perkin finds a perfect opportunity to market his new product in the sudden rise of a fashion trend. In the 1850s, fashion for women was taking off in a direction that involved these massive wired hoop skirts that required a large amount of fabric. And all that fabric had to be dyed. Perkin convinces dressmakers that his inexpensive new dye will help them satisfy demand for their product. And then in 1858, 
Perkins' fledgling business gets a boost. When Britain's Queen Victoria wears a brilliantly dyed dress to her daughter's wedding. The Illustrated London News reports in great detail this dress that she wears and talks about how stunning and electrifying this color was on her. Thanks to Queen Victoria, Movine, now anglicized and simply called Mauve, becomes an overnight sensation. And the craze soon jumps the Atlantic, conquering the American fashion world just as quickly as it did in Europe. All the ladies are wearing these bright colors, and there's this reference at one point as the 1890s as being the mauve decade. In the years that follow, Perkin creates a wide spectrum of synthetic dyes, radically transforming the world's color palette and becoming one of the most influential chemists in history. And in 1906, 50 years after inventing the world's first synthetic dye, he's lauded by his fellow scientists with a ceremony at the legendary New York restaurant Delmonico's. There, he is given the inaugural Perkin Award for his contributions to commercial chemistry. In tribute, all the men wear mauve bow ties, and the restaurant is festooned with mauve banners, bunting, and swag. Someone that attended the dinner recognized that the event was a significant event and wanted a memento to take home. And this piece of mauve fabric, cut from the swag that adorned Delmonico's that night, was donated to the Chemical Heritage Foundation in Philadelphia, along with these samples of the scientists' earliest dyes. Today, it's a vibrant reminder of the accidental discovery that took the world of color from the chemistry lab to the fashion runway. Victorian mansions, a charming town green, and Revolutionary War landmarks illustrate the steadfast pride Morristown, New Jersey has in its past. And much of the town's history is chronicled here at the Morristown and Morris Township Library. But hidden in these archives is a bizarre artifact that according to the head of the History Center, Christine Josham, is from a horrific event that many prefer to forget. It's about three by five and a half inches in size. It's golden brown in color, and it's very brittle. It's a 19th century billfold made of an exceptionally unconventional material. It's not attractive, and it's kind of gruesome. In fact, this small wallet is inextricably linked to a strange tale of scientific experimentation and macabre justice. What role did it play in a vicious criminal's life and his death? 1833, Morristown. On the morning of May 12th, local resident Lewis Halsey is walking along a quiet country lane when he stumbles upon a scattered array of household items. He sees embroidered handkerchiefs. Examining them more closely, he notices the initials of a beloved local figure, Judge Samuel Sayer. Concerned that something may be amiss, Lewis rushes to alert the neighbors, and they quickly head to the Sayers' home. There they are met by a puzzling sight. They go out to the barn and see a large pool of blood and realize at that point that it's something serious. And that's not all they find. 
someone sees a piece of calico fabric sticking out of the manure pile. When they pull on it, they realize that it's part of Mrs. Sayer's dress. And not far from the clothing, they notice yet another disturbing vision. A man's boot protruding from the pile. Pulling on that, they realize that it's still attached to Samuel Sayer. It seems the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Sayer have been bludgeoned to death. As they investigate further, the neighbors discover that the Sayers' new farmhand, a man named Antoine LeBlanc, is nowhere to be found. LeBlanc was the son of farmers in France. He decided that he would make his fortune by coming to America. In search of the Frenchman, investigators follow the trail of the Sayers' stolen possessions. And it leads them right to the suspected killer. He's found at what's called a halfway house, about halfway between Newark and Jersey City on the road to New York. And he's stopped to rest. When they discover that LeBlanc is still carrying some of the Sayers' possessions, any doubt of the Frenchman's guilt is quickly dispelled. And the murderer reveals to his captors what led him to commit this ghastly crime. He thought that he would be lodged, fed, and paid a wage. And Sayer had no intention of paying him any money. So LeBlanc began to plan a robbery of the Sayers. And he realized he would have to kill them too in order to get away with the robbery. LeBlanc admits that the night of the murder, he lured Mr. Sayer to the barn. When Mr. Sayer gets to the barn, LeBlanc takes a spade and smashes in his skull. When Mrs. Sayer came to investigate, he did the same to her. With LeBlanc behind bars, it's not long before an outraged public cries out for justice. News has spread quickly through Morristown, and the people are horrified at the brutality of the murders. After a brief trial, LeBlanc is found guilty of double murder, and on September 6th, he is executed. There was a lot of macabre interest in seeing the hanging of LeBlanc. They left him hanging for a full 40 minutes to make sure he was good and dead. Yet the tale of Antoine LeBlanc does not end with his death. The legacy of this bloodthirsty killer lives on. It's 1833 in Morristown, New Jersey, when farmhand Antoine LeBlanc is found guilty of viciously murdering a local couple. He is summarily sentenced to death. But the strange tale of this bloodthirsty killer does not end with his demise. A provision in LeBlanc's sentence decrees that the loathed criminal's body be donated to medical science. And just hours after his death, local doctors embark on a bizarre set of experiments to test the impact of a new and powerful force, electricity. This was a new scientific belief that by electrifying the body of the deceased, you could bring it back to life. Electrical experiments were conducted on him. In their quest for scientific knowledge, doctors observed the corpse with anticipation. 
They did get LeBlanc to flinch, roll his eyes, smile, got his muscles to twitch in his arms and legs. But ultimately, the experiments end in failure. Abandoning their scientific ambitions, the doctors give in to a more ignominious desire. Revenge. And carefully, they remove the reviled killer's skin. They sent his flesh to a local tannery, which prepared the skin to be made into souvenirs. Things like wallets, coin purses, belts, book bindings. And Morristown residents jump at the chance to possess these gruesome mementos. These are wildly popular souvenirs. And more than a century and a half later, this tanned human skin wallet acquired from a local historian is now preserved in the archives of the Morristown and Morris Township Library, one of the few remaining items made from the skin of Antoine LeBlanc. It serves as a grisly reminder of a twisted tale of murder and retribution in the early 19th century. Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Located just a stone's throw from the nexus of the Ohio and the Kanawha Rivers is the Point Pleasant River Museum, an institution that celebrates the role of these waterways in the city's proud past. Its collection includes a giant aquarium filled with regional fish, model steamboats, and a simulator that replicates the experience of a riverboat captain. But among these displays of local pride is a relic that represents the city's darkest hour. The artifact is a very heavy piece of metal. It weighs about 450 pounds. It's about two inches thick, and then it's got a hole in the center of it. It's about a little over 11 inches in diameter. According to executive director Jack Fowler, this object is at the center of an event that will forever haunt this river town. It was probably the saddest time we've ever experienced here in Point Pleasant. So what is this piece of metal? And what role did it play in one of the most catastrophic events in U.S. history? December 15, 1967, Point Pleasant. It's the height of Friday evening rush hour on the Silver Bridge, a busy roadway situated alongside a railroad crossing. This roadway has carried commuters over the Ohio River for the last 39 years. But as hundreds of cars make their way over the crossing, the din of traffic is suddenly pierced by a heart-stopping boom. It made this huge noise, and people didn't have any idea what it was. Within a few seconds, the bridge sways back and forth. And then, without further warning, it breaks into pieces and collapses into the river. It happened so quickly, it dropped and it took about 45 seconds to a minute for it to happen. First responders rush to a scene of utter destruction and work furiously to pull victims from the wreckage. By the time the recovery mission is over, 46 people are found dead. As the community mourns, the National Transportation Safety Board launches an investigation into the disaster. Why did the Silver Bridge, 
which had safely carried thousands of passengers for the previous 39 years, suddenly fail. It's 1967. For nearly 40 years, the Silver Bridge has spanned the banks of the Ohio River. But on December 15th, the bridge suddenly collapses, killing 46 people. So, what brought down this once reliable crossing? Investigators sift through the endless piles of wreckage in search of clues. Finally, they turn their focus to some structural components called I-bars, long steel plates with circular holes at each end. Each bar is linked to another by placing a steel pin in the holes of two overlapping eyes, ultimately forming a gigantic chain. While most suspension bridges employ cables for stability, the silver bridge relied on these I-bars. They ran all the way up to the top of the tower. That's their primary support mechanism for the roadway that they put in. While engineers find most of the I-bars are still connected to each other in a continuous chain, they notice something unusual about one on the northern side of the bridge. The I-bar marked 330 is out of place and disconnected. And when they study it further, they discover a microscopic fracture at the rim of its hole. It was this crack that caused the steel pin that held the I-bar in place to break loose. And in rapid succession, the rest of the I-bars, like this one on display at the Point Pleasant River Museum, fell away like the remains of a broken bicycle chain, causing the entire silver bridge to catastrophically collapse. In further tests, investigators make a shocking discovery about the faulty I-bar. In their analysis of what occurred, they found that there'd been a flaw from the original cast. But if the crack existed when the bridge was constructed, why didn't it collapse years ago? Officials discover that at first, the tiny crack did not endure heavy stress. When they designed the bridge, they were designing for the cars of that day that weighed 1,500 pounds. In 67, cars weighed four to 5,000 pounds. So, you know, we tripled the weight on the automobiles that used that bridge. The traffic flow itself had also increased. At the time of the collapse, thousands of cars a day were hurtling across the busy thoroughfare. And after 40 years of stress on the Silver Bridge, the crack on the I-bar's rim had widened. There was a minute crack about one-tenth of an inch, which isn't much, but on something of that magnitude, it had to be quite significant to cause that stress corrosion to begin and to amplify. As a direct result of the tragedy, a nationwide inspection of bridges across the United States is ordered, leading to crucial safety reforms and inspiring a new law. Now, all major bridges, including the Silver Bridge's successor, must be thoroughly inspected every two years. Today, this I-bar from the original Silver Bridge remains at the Point Pleasant River Museum, a silent witness to one of the most disastrous bridge collapses in American history. Visitors to Lansing, Michigan will find a wealth of local attractions, including bucolic riverfront trails, 
a minor league ballpark, and a historic state capitol building. And one of this Midwestern city's most popular sites is the Michigan Historical Museum. Inside are such modern innovations as a Model T, as fresh as the day it came off of Henry Ford's assembly line in 1915. And one of the first automated lighthouses, which once graced the shores of the Great Lakes. And a B-24 bomber, produced in Michigan to support the war effort in 1944. But amidst these 20th century marvels is one relic that, according to archaeologist Lisa Young, seems to hail from the earliest days of recorded history. The artifact is 45 by 7 inches wide. It's made of dark gray slate, and it has an ancient type of writing. When this tablet was unearthed, it challenged the most basic tenets of early American history. What is this mysterious artifact? And could it be evidence of a legendary and ancient civilization that once inhabited these shores? 1890, Montcalm County, Michigan. Former professional magician James Scottford has fallen on hard times and takes a series of odd jobs to support his family. One day, he shocks local villagers with a story of an amazing discovery. Scottford tells them he was digging fence post holes in the countryside when his shovel hit something hard. He explains that he had unearthed a small clay cup etched with strange symbols. Scottford goes out and shows them the area where they were excavating, and they all start finding artifacts. One of the relics they find is this slate tablet, now in the collection of the Michigan Historical Museum. Its rough-hewn surface is inscribed with what looks like biblical scenes and symbols written in an ancient language. Some of the writing even reminded people in the town of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Scottford and his fellow townspeople had the relics examined by various antiquities experts and religious scholars, and a compelling theory arises as to their origins. One of the experts looks at them and says these artifacts could result in the rewriting of the history of the entire American continent, if not the entire world. Some scholars conclude that the items were created by the members of a mysterious civilization that lived nearly 3,000 years ago. The Lost Tribes of Israel. The Ten Tribes of Israel are said to have vanished after their kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 720 B.C. Some believe they fled the Middle East and settled in America, but there was never any evidence to support this idea. Until now. Do Scottford's relics prove that the Lost Tribes of Israel beat Columbus to the New World? In 1890, a man named James Scottford finds a set of ancient-looking artifacts buried in the Michigan woods. Some believe they are evidence that one of the fabled lost tribes of Israel may have populated America. So what's the real story behind these mysterious relics? Scottford garners widespread fame and attention for his amazing discovery. He begins charging people to participate in digs, 
and sells artifacts to wealthy collectors for hefty sums. For nearly 20 years, thousands of pieces, from tablets to tools, are pulled from the ground. Then, in 1909, a geologist named James Talmadge participates in a dig, eager to learn more about the exciting finds. But the manner in which the relics are pulled from the ground raises his suspicions. He realizes that the artifacts are not buried very deeply. This starts to make him skeptical. Talmadge takes a few found objects for further examination and reaches a stunning conclusion. James Talmadge says these aren't ancient artifacts. In fact, Talmadge believes they were made by modern craftsmen. And as more experts back Talmadge and angry collectors demand answers, James Scottford suddenly disappears, never to be heard from again. So how did he deceive so many people and pull off this elaborate scam? The mystery remains unsolved for 90 years. Until 2001, when a long-lost affidavit is uncovered in a university archive. Dated 1911, the affidavit bears the signature of Etta Riley, James Scottford's stepdaughter. James Scottford's stepdaughter describes how she has seen her stepfather in making the artifacts in their back garage and often planting these artifacts and then covering them up with moss and grass. But planting the artifacts was just one part of the plan. It was Scottford's training in the art of sleight of hand that allowed him to further his deception. James Scottford used his talents as a magician to take artifacts in his clothing and then put them in the dirt so that people could find them during their excavations. Over the course of his decades-long scheme, Scottford earned thousands of dollars and found himself back in the spotlight, where some say the former stage magician wanted to be all along. Nearly 3,000 of these fake relics were unearthed during Scottford's digs. And today, nearly 800 of them, including this slate tablet, are in the collection of the Michigan Historical Museum. Instead of proving the existence of an ancient society, it serves as a reminder of one of the most elaborate hoaxes in American history. From fraudulent finds to the heights of fashion, an audacious stunt to a wallet made of skin. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.